0: sleep serves many features in the brain Um, among the most recent discoveries is that the brain has an agitation cycle it goes into every night kind of like a washing machine and the cerebral spinal fluid in Delta waves will wash through the the, uh, ventricles and kind of through osmotic pressure leach out all of the metabolic byproducts that built up all day long so you have to have this little washing cycle to pull out all the metabolic byproducts One of the things that triggers is um, memory consolidation. So as you move from your first uh, not slow sleep into your first chunk of slow sleep, which happens about an hour and a half into the night, if you have that first slow wave or deep or dreamless sleep chunk, during that chunk, you get pulled into very, very deep sleep for the first time and you have a strong growth hormone release. And when that growth hormone gets released, All the weak memories in the brain gets kind of shaken up like an Etch-A-Sketch and reset. All the somewhat strong ones get cemented. So that's the consolidation of memories and also it, it helps the busy sort of cloudy mind at the end of the day get wiped away because you actually end up with a huge number of partial synapses every day to get sort of reset to have your fresh, clean mind every morning.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to episode number 69 of our podcast. Today, Andrew Hill joins us. He is a cognitive neuroscientist and founder of the Peak Brain Institute, where he works extensively with neurofeedback. This episode is filled with science-backed tips to improve your sleep and beat anxiety. For details on this episode, be sure to go to neurohacker.com podcast. You'll get a summary of our show, the full transcript, and can join in the conversation in the comments. Speaking of sleep, we have exciting news at Neurohacker Collective. Our long-awaited sleep product will be released in just a few weeks. Qualia Night is a new approach to addressing sleep. Rather than the standard approach that largely orients around providing sedation shortly before bed, our product is intended to be taken around dinner time and focuses on optimizing the restorative properties of sleep. This unique patent-pending formula gives your body what it needs to have a relaxing evening and deep, refreshing sleep. Sign up at neurohacker.com to be the first to know when the product is released. Now, without further ado, let's jump into the show. Here's Heather and Andrew.
2: Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I'm thrilled and delighted to have Dr. Andrew Hill with us. Welcome, Andrew.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
2: So he is one of the top peak performance coaches in the country. He's got a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology and continues to do research today on attention and cognition. The research methodology includes EEG, QEEG, and ERP. Can I just stop right there? And can you those acronyms? Can you just define them and let us know what we're talking about?
0: Right. So EEG broadly is brain waves uh, or electricity your brain produces. Um, And we don't really understand EEG. I mean, brain scientists who study the brain using electricity are sort of managing phenomena more than really looking at discrete uh, things we understand deeply. So we're often describing things we observe and not knowing why we observe them. Um, But EEG historically was uh, really Around a sleep science, so most of the things we do today in EEG are informed by, you know, eighty years of of sleep sort of analysis historically. So the number of channels in the head or electrodes in the head we use for most of the analyses, the way we measure electricity, a lot of that is driven by um, old school sort of sleep science. So broadly, EEG is brainwaves. QEEG, which stands for quantitative EEG, is a way of looking at resting brainwaves. And then comparing many of the parameters, the amounts of those brain waves, the patterns in the head, the connectivity between those regions uh, on the head, um, you compare those to a normative database of a few hundred or thousand people and see how unusual one person is to look for the population level outliers in their resources, so QEG is a sort of hypothesis generation to look for all the weird things in your brain. It's kind of like fun, you know the difference between a, a, a discrete doctor, a physician, and a functional medicine doc. The functional medicine doc will grab lots of. Um, data and then kind of trying to find the big patterns that might be meaningful for the thing you care about but maybe not quite as discreetly as like finding a virus or finding a you know dominant or recessive trait it's often oh this can often mean x or it might mean y when you're working with a functional medicine doc and their job is to spot the traits and the patterns and give you things that can affect the um, the underlying system and from QEEG, that's what we do. We look at your brain and say, oh, hey, here's something that's unusual for you. And for some people, this unusual pattern can present this particular kind of resource bottleneck. And some of the patterns we see in brain mapping or QEEG are almost valid. They're almost diagnostic like the markers for ADHD. Um, blindly, you can sort people into buckets of ADHD and non-ADHD, thousands of people, never asking them one question or measuring their attention at all, simply looking at the single measurement of the ratio of theta brainwaves to beta brain waves at the top of the head. That one measurement is 94% accurate for sorting people into buckets of ADHD and non-ADHD. Um, you know, uh, corresponding with diagnostic, you know, interviews with psychologists, uh, obviously. So that that's QEG. It gives us discriminants or statistics and go, oh, that's interesting. Here's an unusual feature for you to tease apart where things might land. And then ERPs is another EEG technology, uh, event-related or evoked potential. And that's the brain having a moment of... Either binding to information in the outside world or attending to something or, or making a choice, so that 's the brain reacting in in real time within milliseconds to something you 're observing or thinking or deciding to do, or noticing a grammatical error or being startled. The brain has these little blips where it responds within you know, between 50 and about 350 or 450 milliseconds to every event around it that you're perceiving, as well as internal events. And that's what ERP is, is looking at the sort of subtle music the brain is playing in response to the input-output of information. And that uh, ERP is really a scientific endeavor to sort of understand the basics of how the brain works, where QEEG is science to understand maybe how you work. And then EEG is just broad science. And then we do EEG biofeedback or neurofeedback to change your brain uh, by exercising the resources and actually physically changing your brain over, over many weeks and months. So there's all, all different ways we use EEG. Uh, and I, I use EEG in my uh, different areas. So.
2: so tell me more about the exercise. You're speaking from the perspective of like an athletic coach or a physical trainer, personal yeah. trainer. Um, what does that exercise look like?
0: So the biofeedback, broadly, um, to do a session of EEG-based biofeedback, you would come in and uh, sit in a chair, uh, and you would put three or four or five wires on. So we put a couple ear clips on your ears, and then we would stick one or two wires to the spot on your head we want to exercise. And we'll measure the brain waves under those electrodes. In real time, and your brain's changing moment to moment. So the most valid again marker in brain brain mapping is, uh, the, is ADHD. The the ratio of theta brain waves to beta brain waves. Theta is a slow brain wave. It runs at about six or seven uh, cycles per second. Beta that we're talking about is up about twice that, twelve to fifteen uh, cycles per second. If the ratio of theta to beta is above about two or two and a half in an adult, it's ADHD. Um, if it's below that, it's probably not. So you can measure the amount of theta you're making moment to moment. It's going to fluctuate. And whenever it happens on its own to drift down for half a second, the biofeedback, biofeedback machine goes, good job, brain, and makes something happen. Put on a screen, so you might be watching a uh, Pac-Man eat dots, or a spaceship fly across a lake, or a dragon, or something fly, or you know maybe your car is zipping around uh, off-road tracks, hitting zombies or something. And whenever your brain happens briefly to trend in the more a little more in the right direction, the software runs. And when your brain trends in the wrong direction briefly, the software stops. So it's kind of going, good job brain, good job brain, nope. Ooh, good job brain good job brain good job brain nope and the brain's like hey why does that keep stopping and it figures out within about 10 minutes that whenever it happens to drop its theta for instance stuff happens in the outside world it doesn't know it's virtual so it's kind of going oh hey wait a minute that's me whenever i drop theta stuff happens and then it starts to drop its theta more and the trick here is that every few seconds we move the goalposts so this is operant conditioning we're sort of Setting up a goal and saying, okay, move your theta down a little bit, brain. Okay, good job. And then moving the goalposts further. So the brain's getting information about the sort of desired trend very gently. We don't zap the brain. There are techniques that impose electricity. Um, We don't. We just measure what your brain is doing and gently applaud it with the audio and visuals for certain movements it's already making. And so it happens because the brain likes input. Tomorrow, the brain does a little more of what produced increased input today. And your job as the smart, intelligent, you know, aware person is go. Ooh, I noticed this, my sleep was different, or my stress response was kind of different, or I had fewer seizures, or my migraines didn't show up. And you report back what you're noticing. And then we iterate like a personal trainer would try some more things, build up workouts, stack them, and then go back and map your brain every 20 sessions of neurofeedback. So at Peak Brain, typically we do about forty sessions to begin, uh, three months, and that takes uh, you know three times a week, uh, about forty sessions, and we map the brain at least twice along the way, you know, every twenty sessions, and typically from the beginning to about the month three mark, uh, almost everyone with stress, attention, sleep, kind of basic problems, will make somewhere between two and three standard deviations of change, on brain mapping at rest as well as on executive function tests, um, and so really. Massive resources can be shifted in a very dramatic uh, you know, short amount of time we, we almost eliminate executive function difficulty in most people in like a three to six month time frame So it's it's, it's it's not you know instantaneous the way a medication is you don't feel it kick in the first moment but it's closer to like you know Deciding to change your body and get some abs and get some shoulder strength or something and work at it for a few months You're you know, it's all very slow change but after a few months of continual slow change that you're pushing on and tuning and chasing, you're kind of in a very, very different place at the end. And most of the things I've seen are permanent in terms of effects, you know, executive function, stress response. Um, seizures and migraines are often not quite as permanent because you're working on more of the deep brain stuff and it's more injuries often uh, with, with a with, uh, seizure certainly. Um, and then when there's a lot of wear and tear concussions and things, they can often take a little bit longer. You know, four to six months is sort of the minimum when there's wear and tear. Uh, but for things like ADHD and anxiety, it's usually a three to four month process to make you know pretty big permanent change.
2: What about sleep? So I'm curious how, sleep is one of the most common complaints um, that I get in my office as a clinician. Yeah. I'm so curious how neurofeedback might affect sleep and what you're seeing symptomatically as well as in the mapping.
0: Yeah. So I will often, sometimes I'll see sleep indicators in the maps where I can guess that someone has a sleep difficulty. Um, uh, some of the more reliable things that show up are anxiety features in the brain map because we have specific circuits for um, noticing the environment, switching our attention, that get a little bit ramped up when we experience anxiety. You know, There's no real depression feature in the brain. I can't see depression as a marker, but I can see rumination, perseveration, hypervigilance, those sorts of features of anxiety. Sometimes those come along with, um, some of the stress features will come along with markers that suggest difficulty with sleep onset, or with the maintenance, the depth of sleep. Those are often common features that co-occur with anxiety complaints. So those will show up in, in anxiety. Also in ADHD, there's some good theories these days that ADHD is a failure of sleep spindle stabilization. One of the, one of the core theories, SMR, this 12 to 15 hertz that we actually use to eliminate ADHD seems to be a bit impaired in sleep so everybody who does neurofeedback the way that we do it gets sleep benefits, everybody, whether or not you come in with a sleep problem. And if you come in with a sleep problem, this is often the best sleep you've ever gotten in your life after in the first couple of weeks. And so, you mentioned
2: that a lot of this is permanent. Now, do you see yeah, the same thing in sleep?
0: We do, yeah. Sleep tends, I mean, anything you regulate enough tends to stay regulated because the brain is practicing it, so to speak, every day. It's kind of like if you had a torn knee and you went to physical therapy for six months, at the end of that process, you have a nice strong knee, probably, and now you're walking around every day and day. You're keeping your knee strong. If you start staying up all night long, um, you know, do these do things that are counter to circadian entrainment, eat late at night, um, don't exercise, you know, after a few weeks, you absolutely would have eroded your sleep quality. But often, I find when there's a significant sleep issue. Well, there's really two things. One is everyone's got sleep issues that are worse than they think. And the people that are really have bad sleep issues, it's not the sleep anymore that's the issue. It's the anxiety around the sleep issue. That's the real big problem. So in the mild sort of subacute, yeah, I got a sleep issue, but, you know, they don't realize how bad it is. Everyone gets amazing regulation. They just stop sleeping, like, you know, really, really well. In the folks for whom it's really an anxiety, a sleep anxiety phenomenon now, we often drop the anxiety before we drop the sleep and, and we don't get the sleep changes until the anxiety drops because it started off as a sleep problem, is flipped over into becoming an anxiety problem in the brain in terms of where it's being uh, maintained if you will in the brain
2: can you tell us why it's so important to get good sleep and what the science is around that
0: why it's important to get good sleep yeah there's many reasons uh, sleep serves many features in the brain um, Among the most recent discoveries is that the brain has an agitation cycle it goes into every night, kind of like a washing machine. And the cerebral spinal fluid in delta waves will wash through the the, uh, ventricles and kind of, through osmotic pressure, leach out all of the metabolic byproducts that built up all day long. So you have to have this little washing cycle to pull out all the metabolic byproducts. One of the things that triggers is... um, Memory consolidation. So as you move from your first uh, not slow sleep and your first chunk of slow sleep, which happens about an hour and a half into the night, if you have that first slow wave or deep or dreamless sleep chunk, during that chunk, you get pulled into very, very deep sleep for the first time, and you have a strong growth hormone release. And when that growth horm- hormone gets released, all the weak memories in the brain get kind of shaken up like an Etch-A-Sketch and reset. All the somewhat strong ones get cemented. So that's the consolidation of memories and also it, it helps the busy sort of cloudy mind at the end of the day get wiped away because you actually end up with a huge number of partial synapses every day that get sort of reset to have your fresh, clean mind every morning. And the ones that are reinforced are then reinforced, you know.
2: So you mentioned memory. It sounds like with... Inadequate sleep, you might be at risk of cognitive decline or memory impairment.
0: Absolutely, and it's it's even worse than that because with lack of deep sleep over time, you start producing. Um, if you don't make good delta at night, you start producing slowed alpha as well. And so, first of all, you feel tired and you feel burnt out, and you wake up tired in the morning. Second of all, when your alpha slows down, you end up with speed of processing issues as a consequence of sleep. So people come in with slowed alpha waves. And they report lots of afternoon burnout, lots of naming and word finding and verbal fluency issues and delayed recall of names. Um, That's not a memory issue. It's a speed of processing. But speed of processing is one of the three big human cognitive resources we can actually measure. Like speed of processing is a real thing. Intelligence, not so real. Speed of processing... Valid, you know working memory speed of processing and implicit learning. Those are the three big human things but intelligence. nah, eh, that's a, a construct um, Speed of processing will drag down Everything you can't load up your working memory. You can't grab words out of your mind You can't recall items very quickly. So when speed of processing is a problem. It's a it's a big problem Usually it causes a major issue So I'll look at someone's brain and see extra fast delta waves because they aren't getting good deep sleep And the alpha waves have slowed down because of it and all their beta waves or thinking waves Will be a combination of really slow because they're burnt out and really fast because they're cranked up driving through the fog so the metaphor i'll, I'll use for some people when i see this is like they're a sports car driving down the highway with the emergency brake on Ouch. and they have the gas pedal on the floor to make up for it so they arrive at their destination fine but they arrive they're out of gas shaky nervous hot you know burnt out and this is a classic like sub acute sleep issue i see in many many people they're kind of brute forcing their resources, and so while they have fine performance, it's not the most efficient performance. And we sort of tease apart, you know, the ways in which it falls over, if you will, uh, once we do some assessments.
2: So it sounds like it's pretty important to uh, stay on a sleep schedule. That can you speak to? I hear a lot of people say, okay, if you get to sleep before midnight, you get more benefit from those hours. True. Is there any science? Yeah, can you break? There down is, it but that? everyone
0: has the science wrong. I'm uh, sorry to tell you that everyone everyone gives the wrong advice.
2: Enlighten me, me. us
0: yeah the most important thing about circadian regulation has has very little to do with light first of all, I don't care about your blue blocking glasses. I'm sorry Daniel's going to hate me when I say that, but like, oh, and um, I love you cause um, I I because I can't stand wearing them <laughs> yeah they're horrible they're horrible um, but you know i I know that a lot of people in our biohacking community are big fans of managing light. I just don't think it's a big deal you know it um there's a study out not too long ago showing some, some mice and rats who were engineered to not make any melatonin at all, still had plenty, plenty um, good circadian entrainment and sleep cycles and things. It's, it's an effect, but it's not a big effect, the melatonin cycle. Um, I'm much more concerned about when you eat oh, interesting. than I am about, about light. That's by far the strongest uh, zeitgeber time giver for the brain is when you eat. So the most important thing for circadian entrainment is to fast for three to four hours before bed. Fasting in the morning is not that important, but fasting in the evening is. So for all the IF people, they're doing it wrong. You're supposed to fast at the end of the day, not the beginning of the day, first of all. Um, So if you have to do one thing, fast for three to four hours before bed. If you need some calories, sorry, if you need some, some, some flavor or a ritual, make some herbal tea. No calories for at least three hours. Second most important thing, get up the same time roughly every morning, plus or minus half an hour. I don't care when you go to bed but I want you getting up early because the light that matters is the morning light, not the evening light.
2: Okay, so the morning light does matter.
0: It does, but not as much as not eating at night.
2: Okay, all right, good. You can put these in order. So that, and then
0: the third, you know. in order, is get some exercise in the morning before you eat.
2: Oh okay okay. And so there's a couple things clinically. I have seen that some people who eat a little bit of protein right before they go to bed, they won't wake up either with high blood sugar yeah. or they won't wake up in the middle of the night. They get better sleep maintenance. Can you help me square that circle?
0: Yeah, they're they they have lousy insulin basically <laughs> and and you know, have more fat earlier in the day, you won't have a dip in insulin before bed and have to feed yourself some protein. Um, They're probably having such low blood sugar, they're going to um, protein, you know, neogenesis for glucose instead. Um, if If you go to bed with some blood sugar at all high, basically, if you go to bed full, you wake up hungry and tired. If you go to bed hungry, you wake up full and refreshed. And if you're unable to fall asleep because you're hungry or waking up in the middle of the night because of a drop in blood sugar, your blood sugar is not stable enough. It should be able to handle fasting like that. The growth hormone surge that happens 90 minutes in should allow you to handle you know, no problems with energy. So I would say you should be eating more fat earlier in the day.
2: And then, what about getting outside? Personally, I feel so much better if I get some sunlight. If I'm getting light regularly versus being trapped inside all day, and I hear that from a lot of people. So, is light really not what it is? Is it something else about being outside?
0: It's activity more than anything else. You know that that's a stronger circadian cue than light is. uh, Activity is. That's why I want you to exercise in the morning before you wake up, before you eat. But morning light. There's a special frequency or temperature of light that's in the air. Um, within one hour of dawn, it's very prevalent. After that, that it's pretty much gone because the sun's higher in the sky and it gets reflected back into space. But this this sort of blue light, um, there's a structure above the optic chiasm, the the nerves that cross behind the eyes, the optic X, the chi. It's called the optic chiasm. And above the optic chiasm, you have a nucleus called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the SCN. And the SCN's job is to monitor the temperature of light hitting the retina and it's very specially tuned to react strongly to a certain frequency of light that's only there at the beginning of the day. And so it's the strong, hey, it's morning kind of signal. This SCN does this really strong entrainment thing. The evening melatonin stuff is about stretching your circadian rhythm. That's all it's doing. And women have to be a little more careful for evening light and evening eating because you have a short circadian rhythm compared to men. A little bit shorter, like in, like forty five minutes or half an hour shorter. So if you do late night eating, women, it's a little more damaging because you're already at the end of your circadian rhythm, so it gets stretched more easily than it would for men. So but is this men. the
2: reason why I need more sleep?
0: No, that's just oh. that's just yeah. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> can't use that.
0: <laughs> sorry, no. Uh, uh, there's the, there's very little difference in the brain of men and women, almost none, right? So there are some differences, but the amount of sleep is not one. That's just your quirky, wonderful self, you know, needing a little more sleep um, I and mean, baby. And maybe that, yes, that's definitely, I'm, I'm, I think we have a good hypothesis, yes. That'll, <laughs> that'll definitely do some things.
2: Okay, so what about taking naps, like middle of the day sleeping? You're saying light doesn't have a lot to do with it. It's more about when you're eating. So yeah. can people take an afternoon nap and be all right?
0: I think so. I don't think there's a good, um, you know, I, I think it can throw off your cicada rhythm. I think most Westerners are already pretty mis uh, uh, poorly entrained you know misaligned with circadian stuff because we you know we evolved to have like a 10 hour 11 hour 12 hour light of, you know window of light and that was it and then we would go to bed when the sun went down and we would get up in the middle of the night for an hour or two after sleeping for four hours and we would like spend an hour or two praying soaking the beans writing in our journal by candlelight having sex and then go back to sleep and then sleep for four more hours and wake up at dawn and you know, milk the cows, whatever, but we have these weird like split periods of sleep theoretically, historically, it's an old, you know, some, some ideas that we don't actually need to sleep in a big chunk, that being said, I don't know any research that's just napping is all that beneficial, and I know some people who swear by napping and they need it, other folks who, they hate it, um, I would encourage folks that have a strong feeling about napping one way or the other to look at their nighttime sleep first. And my hunch is if you grab an Aura ring or a Whoop or something or a BioStrap, you'll discover you aren't getting good deep sleep. And your urge to nap is the micro-sleeping pushing back because you aren't getting good deep sleep at night. I, I think humans can easily regulate any sleep sleep schedule. You know, We can become larks or owls or we can, we can sleep in one giant chunk. We can be Socrates and sleep you know, 20 minutes every four hours if we want to. You know we're very adaptable, but I think in a modern world most of us should probably, you know, adults, you know, north of 16 or something, should probably be sleeping in one chunk roughly most nights. And napping is probably not the most efficient for most people. But that's just that's more of a of a theory. I don't have good science behind that.
2: So you mentioned some uh, devices you can use at home to track your sleep. What are your favorites? Basically
0: anything that tracks HRV heart rate variability is it's an okay way of tracking sleep stage. Um, there's no good EEG sleep trackers for the home user anymore. There were some in the market 10 years ago, but not currently. Um, so, the HRV trackers that are sort of, I think, best in class, um, you can go cheap and get a Fitbit, which is like 150 bucks. those are actually pretty good. Um, or you can get really high-end and go with like a, a Whoop, which is a, for athletes and high-performance, it's a wrist strap you wear all the time. Um, and it measures your heart rate when you're exercising. It measures your heart rate variability day to day, and how it tells you about your sleep stages. It tells you about your body strain if you're ready to hit the gym hard that day, or if you should relax because of your heart rate variability it suggests you haven't recovered yet from the previous workout. Um, and then the Aura Ring is a sort of biohackers, you know, style device which uh, does some sleep tracking as well. The Aura Ring only tracks at night, so you can't use it during workouts. Um, it relies on some bi- biomechanical tricks like the fingers swelling up at night to get good data so i'm not a huge fan of the aura ring as a sleep tracker because it's not continuous day in day out but i have certain friends in the biohacker world who will only use the aura because they can turn off the bluetooth on it Mm. um and they don't want to have any uh electromagnetic electromagnetic you know signals that's another thing that i that i don't care about that all my biohacker friends are really hot on is electromagnetic signals i don't think there's any issue with em and 5G? I'm not concerned about 5G, EM, cell phones, none of it. Because I know how damn hard it is to get anything in or out of the skull. It's nearly impossible to get electricity in or out of the skull. It's so hard. I, my entire life has been trying to get little tiny micro signals out of the skull and avoiding contamination in the environment. You know, it, it, like There was a study last summer showing you can do TMS across the skull of a corpse and none of the electricity gets in. It goes around the skull, not through the skull. You know, so I, I just don't think that EM is a big deal. I'm not concerned about it, you know, essentially visible or, or invisible. I'm not concerned about EM as, as a big driver. Not when we have so much more control over when we eat, when we sleep, when we're active. And those do move things rapidly and obviously. And there's no, there's no science question about light and eating, be, you know, sorry, about uh, activity and eating. There is some question about light, about being a big deal. But eating, that's, not, that's been well understood for decades about the biggest uh, you know, zeitgeber or time So let's
2: talk more specifically about eating. What nutrients influence how well we sleep?
0: Well, I mean, we need to have, we need to not be in, in a starvation mode consistently to sleep well, but we, humans are again, adaptable. We can go two or three days without eating and sleep very well. Um, if we're in a good sort of insulin state, it can generate ketones. Um, you can be somebody else who's eating crappily really all the time and, you know, eats carbs to fall asleep, wakes up hungry, snacks on carbs really long to top off their blood sugar, is always in an inflammation state. Um, you know, that's not going to work great long term, but you can perform that way as a human if you need to. You can you know to handle starches. Um, it's a little bit variable. Some people can handle starches better than others without having a negative consequence. You know, you have a more reactive insulin system or you have... APOE genetic status that means your facts, fats oxidized more readily. Um, those are factors, but they're not huge factors in health and wellness of the brain. I mean, the, the biggest features are for aging and performance is to minimize all the sugars in your environment and your dietary environment to zero. You know, or or, to, or to go close to it. You know, low amounts of carbs. The carbs you get should come from vegetables and from starchy and water-filled fruit, not from sugar. Things not from grains, not from you know uh, uh, cereals, essentially.
2: So is but that more of like variable. paleo? And
0: I think you I think you can or should eat paleo or primal or keto, however you want to. But you know, the only brain diet that I don't think is all that well established in literature. Like I don't think there's any there's any. Good reason to, for a health reason, for brain health reason, is vegan. Like I think you're going to kill yourself being vegan for your brains really bad for you, in my opinion, unless you're extremely careful. But you're doing more harm to the environment by eating all the engineered foods to make up your nutritional gaps, probably. If you're vegan, anyways. So I want to, I want to know why you're vegan if you're vegan aggressively, because that doesn't make sense to me. Um, and if you are vegan and you're hearing this and you're, you're getting ready to send me hate mail. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in nutritional deficit, probably, unless you're very, very careful. And I would encourage you, a lot of my vegan friends are actually now vegan plus muscles.
2: Oh, say why muscles?
0: Because muscles have a very uh, primitive nervous system, don't feel much pain, they're sedentary, they can be farmed with almost no impact to the environment, and they're self-replenishing. Mm. So okay, they so- fit all the same criteria that my friends use to select food. That, you know, there's, there's no faces, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I have certain groups of friends now that are vegan plus certain types of non-plant matter that fits the same criteria. And I would encourage you, if you are vegan, y- you should probably be building in some of those uh, foods. If you aren't vegan, then you should be building in some of the organ meat foods to get trace nutrients, you know, liver, heart, kidney, that kind of stuff.
2: Can you say exactly what those nutrients are, and can you supplement them, or is that just a processed form of trying to, try to get, a, get these nutrients? Yeah
0: up? if you're supplementing if you're, yeah, yeah if you're supplementing things sorry if you're supplementing things you would get from organ meats, you're basically just supplementing desiccated organ meat, so you might as well just you know learn how to cook liver or, or you know high, or go to your butcher and have them grind up a half pound of beef heart and three pounds of beef or something you know so you hide it in, in your hamburgers or something but like offal or organ meat is incredibly good for micronutrients and for lots and lots of, uh, you know, minerals essentially that you can't really get in any other way. So if all you are is a, you know, Westerner eating, uh, you know, white chicken and red meat and vegetables, you're actually missing out in huge swaths of other nutrients. So you should go into the micronutrient vegetables or organ meats or both, you know, uh, 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 bone marrow, livers, hearts, all kinds of interesting things. You know. So
2: liver and bone marrow. When I think about that, I worry about toxins that might be concentrated in those organs in certain animals. Is that not a problem? I don't think
0: for bone marrow very much. I mean, yeah, you you can you can concentrate certain things. Um, but bone marrow is also a generator of tissue, largely, right? So I'm not concerned about bone marrow itself, unless you've been you know, having a cow in a radioactive farm or something. But, um, you know, livers are, are regenerative. Livers, livers are the only organ that basically regenerates itself continuously. So you don't trap toxins in your liver forever. You know, it's, I mean, all, all, all food, even plants, it contains toxins, and contains the metabolic byproducts of that organism's metabolism. You know, livers got metabolic byproducts in it, but, you know, I'd rather have some nice pasture-raised chicken livers than I would go to, a, you know, a farm and eat like, you know, a, a, go to an industrial farm and eat like, you know, pen-raised cattle liver. You know, that's not going to be good for you, but not so much because it's the liver, but because of all the other stuff the cow is eating. So I care more about the overall environment. Like I, I, I eat lots of meat. You know, be, I'm very you know frank about it. But I'm incredibly careful about where I get my meat from. You know, it comes from known sources. I have uh, a freezer in my kitchen that I don't I don't buy random meat. You know, it, I buy buy a certain sources and i'm careful with it and i get you know good quality because i don't want to be contributing to all the other things that are a problem with the meat industry with grain fed meats for health reasons there's lots of problems in meat health and industrial reasons i try to minimize those and we have to but you know life is a exercise in harm reduction it really is you know everything will kill you don't take life seriously you will knock it out alive you know <laughs> everything's going to kill you so it's about harm reduction and making choices to minimize risks and maximize gains versus you know being orthorexic with your diet or something you know yeah
2: Yeah, that that probably would contribute to the anxiety that will keep you from sleeping, right? Right, right. Now we're back to sleep problem. So what can we do if we are having trouble falling asleep at night? You mentioned that most people have sleep issues that maybe are subclinical and they're not complaining about outright, but maybe aren't optimal for having good function throughout the day. So if I want to get to sleep easier tonight and get better sleep tonight, what can I do before I go to bed?
0: Well, I mean... uh, mm. There's lots, it, it takes a while to adjust your sleep. If your sleep has not been good, your sleep architecture, the habits around sleep, when you crave carbs, when you're awake, when, you know, how deeply you sleep, that's a, that's a learned process. In, in some ways, your, your first nervous system is, that, is involved, your enteric nervous system, your gut, is involved with learning to be hungry at certain times of the day. So you have to teach yourself over time how to fix your sleep. But the easiest way to do it is simply to get up before you want to consistently several days a week like get up at 4 a.m for a week you will have a different sleep regulation a week later i guarantee you you know if you focus on your morning more than your evening and that and that that, again it gets you away from this anxiety around sleep don't worry so much if you can't fall asleep you know you can't not sleep you you, you really can't if you go three or four days without sleeping you will get psychotic or seven or eight you know yeah it'll happen you'll get crazy so don't worry about it you'll fall asleep sooner or later you know i mean it'll happen uh there's if your mind's busy that's anxiety if your body's tight it could be stressed there's lots of things you can do um to shift states like a meditative progressive body scan you know putting your mind in each muscle and relaxing it can sort of allow people to shift into sleep or if you find you're anxious instead of resisting the anxiety and beating yourself up for not falling asleep in the bed you can find things to distract yourself or you can do other exercises around you know, meditative things or use the time. I mean, I every I have really great sleep these days. I go to, I go to bed at 9 p.m., wake up at 4 to 4.15 without an alarm every single day now. That's the best regulate I've ever been in my life. I'm mean, never this good. Years ago, I used to work in bakeries at 3 and 4 a.m. I would never get up cleanly as like a person in my teens or 20s. But, you know, in my 40s, I figured out all the tricks and I wake up, you know, uh, easily without any issues but it's about the morning it really is you have to protect your morning to keep your sleep tight the evenings much less important i don't care if you're up to four in the morning on the internet and with lights blaring in your eyes once a week won't be a big deal if you're keeping track of all the other stuff the rest of the nights, you know
2: and then what about people who wake up? I mean, this may be the same answer, but people who can't maintain their sleep, is it the same thing? You want them waking up at 4 a.m. Well, and just get out I of do, bed?
0: I do, but those people have sleep maintenance, it's usually anxiety. It's a generalized mm-hmm. anxiety. Often the, the brain's kind of peeking through the, through the veil of sleep all night long and white knuckling the world, not letting go of the world. The person's often a bit hypervigilant. And what you're getting is a sleep disruption because the brain is anxious and kind of peering around all night long. And that usually comes along with a lot of crappy deep sleep, a lot of fatigue. Um, So I would actually want to have the person examine what's provoking or supporting the anxiety more than the sleep when it's a sleep maintenance issue. Sleep onset can be sleep stuff. regulation of sleep stuff can be anxiety too. But sleep onset can be insomnia. But maintenance of sleep I almost always find has features of generalized anxiety that goes along with it. And so I'd want to figure out how to work on that, be it uh, feedback or neurofeedback or therapy or something else to work on those uh, those more palliative, you know, ways of dissolving that stress response.
2: I'm curious your opinion about benzos and really generally GABA receptor agonists. So alcohol, phenyl GABA, yeah. Ambien, and clonopin, or
0: generally they cause problems. Okay. You know, that's, that's they short might,
2: answer. they might get you a little bit of relief tonight, but over time it's going to cause more. Very
0: problems. short. Yeah. For, yeah. For, 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 for days or weeks, you'll get benefits and then you'll end up in trouble. Now, not all of them are habit forming. Many are. Um, and that's you get in second level trouble. You know, if things are habit forming, most GABA ergics are fairly habit forming. Um, also GABA is an uh, inhibitory neuro, uh, neurotransmitter. So you get disinhibited a little bit, you, you know, so what's the joke? You know, five drunk, drunk guys start a fight, five stone guys start a band. Um, <laughs> so, you know, GABA Ergics, uh, the brain tends to require its GABA to be at a fairly stable level moment to moment. If your GABA goes up at all, you pass out. If your GABA goes down at all, you have a seizure, you know, cause the GABA and the glutamate are tight balance, and they're very tightly regulated. They can't be shifted much at all. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of monkeying with GABA with external exogenous chemicals because it's such a powerful system that re-regulates itself to keep the GABA internally at the same level because it can't handle a change. This is why alcoholism produces a shaky, nervous, burnt-out person who can't fall asleep after a few years because that's a GABA. The brain stops producing GABA with the alcohol releasing the GABA, For folks that are listening, that that smooth, warm feeling you have a couple weeks, a couple drinks in, that's GABA being released in your brain. Feels good. But if you keep doing that, the brain's like, I don't need to produce GABA, and it starts to ramp its glutamate up to compensate for the alcohol you're drinking. So you have the glutamate, glutamatergic, if you will, tone increased. In the absence of drinking, you're shaking, you're nervous, your cardiovascular system spikes, you have seizures, you can't fall asleep. That's all a failure of your own endogenous GABAergic production. So I'm not a big fan of people. I mean, I, I work with tons of people come uh, through my offices having done lots of GABAergics or still on them. And those people that have done them for any length of time are addicted. And almost everyone who's been taking them for years has no effect from them. Mm-hmm. It's still taking them. Like they're on Xanax every night to get some sleep because they don't take Xanax. They're having anxiety attacks for the first three, night, three hours of the night but they aren't getting better sleep because of it. They've just been addicted to Xanax for 10 years.
2: And there's an argument that you might be getting worse sleep if you're taking a benzo, right?
0: Absolutely. You're in a hypnotic state. There is no drug that causes sleep. So benzos kick anxiety out of the way. Theoretically, you're tired, then you fall asleep. But there are no drugs that trigger the sleep state. So any drug that causes sleep like states is a hypnotic drug that produces a state that is not actually asleep. And you might spend all night long in a hypnotic trance, wake up, having not rested things like ambien and you know uh, all those other next generation sleep drugs those are just hypnotics they they're not producing sleep they're producing you know a rubber mallet to your mind so that you think so that you can get out of your own way a little bit maybe fall asleep later but people take also even melatonin for sleep people take massively too many doses i mean the effective dose of melatonin is 300 micrograms 3.3 milligrams that's it but there's a bimodal dose curve where people get a response at about three to 500 micrograms and they get another response at about like five to 50. And there's nothing in between in terms of responses. But if you take five, 10, 15, 20 milligrams, you get effects from melatonin two or three days later in rebound versus taking 0.3 milligrams you get a very nice strong effect that wears off the same night So everyone's using melatonin wrong first of all almost everybody because you're overdosing it because they're essentially abusing a Fairly innocuous, but but abusing a drug that your body uses to signal So um, I think that people are getting into trouble with melatonin as much as they are Xanax
2: Wow, that's a big call. Yeah And then
0: the the consequences uh, of that trouble are much reduced. You know, the consequences of melatonin issues are just continued crappy deep sleep and sleep onset. The consequences of uh, Xanax abuse are much, much higher, obviously. But I think that it's a bigger problem, probably melatonin than Xanax, for more people, you know.
2: Just because it's more ubiquitous, you don't need a prescription for it.
0: Yeah, because more people are abusing it. Most people are using it wrong. Yeah.
2: And with melatonin, does it interfere with your? quality of sleep to the degree that a benzodiazepine does?
0: It probably interferes with the quality of your sleep the second night, not the first night. Um, Also, a little concerned that melatonin could downregulate serotonin because melatonin in the brain is produced from serotonin as the raw material. So the uh, neurotransmitters are constructed by enzymes, which will create one thing, convert to the next, the next, the next. Like tyrosine is converted into dopamine. Well, serotonin is converted into melatonin. It's the raw material. So all serotonin neurons in the, in the body have an autoreceptor, a receptor that listens to the amount of neurotransmitter that same neurons releasing into the synapse. And if it releases too much, it downregulates. So this is why SSRIs, after you take it for several weeks, um, Prozac and whatever, you actually have lower serotonin amounts in your body than you than before because the autoreceptors actually downregulate serotonin production when you boost it with drugs.
2: Okay, so, like, so that's a great segue into trazodone and doxepin and those and SSRIs for sleep. Opinion yeah. there?
0: Um, I don't think they work that well except in short term and it's just usually when it works it's because the person was depressed or anxious and you're breaking that state. Um, I think Trazodone is probably the least habit-forming of all those, right? So, um, And I've seen tons of people on Trazodone for sleep who aren't getting great effects. I've been thinking, are you taking some stuff for sleep? Yeah, I've taken Trazodone. How long? Oh, about six years. Oh, really? How's it working? I don't sleep. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it worked for like the first week and then stopped working, but they kept taking it. That's very common for sleep meds is the, the efficacy goes away, but the person keeps taking it. So...
2: So, are there any other tips or hacks that you have for getting better sleep? I think I, let's just go through them real quick. So, fast for three hours before you get to bed. Wake up at 4 a.m.
0: Wake up consistently early, roughly the same time every day. Earlier
2: than you want to. Earlier
0: than you want to, yep.
2: And so, is it important? Or the sun? We're about to go into the winter, you know, summer versus winter. Do you want to get up earlier in the summer summer than in the winter? And can you sleep a little later in the winter because of the light? Or you're saying light has absolutely nothing to do with it?
0: Well, not absolutely nothing to do with it. And the light that matters is the light in the first hour after dawn. But I think by the time dawn happens, you should have been up already, you know. Um, So, yes things do change um, summer and winter, and that's really a function of society more than anything else. I mean, I you, know, you, you see that accidents, uh, the day after daylight savings time kicks in, the accident rates go way, way up that next day all across the country. People, more people die the day after you change the time zone in this country than if, if you didn't change. So there's several proposals now to either get rid of daylight savings time or make it consistently 100% Daily savings time year round in this country, and I think that will actually help us a lot. Um, yes, we adjust in the winter. It, of course, gets uh, light. It's it darker earlier and, and and light earlier in the day as well. I find it easier to adhere to an early morning schedule in the winter,
2: hmm.
0: but that's just probably me in terms of the cues. You know, I'm I'm just find it easier. I don't think it matters all that much, and I also don't think it. I don't think that we can have it matter. I think most of us use our jobs as the big timer of our lives, and if you work, you know, eight to five or something, well, you're not going to get up at four a.m. sometimes of the year and seven a.m. other times of the year, you know, because you can't. So you have to pick up. Like I, I have two offices, for instance. Um, my big peak brain offices are in Los Angeles and St. Louis, so the two biggest offices. And I go back and forth. It's a two-hour time zone difference, and I have the same wake time uh, consistently every day of the week, no matter what state i'm in so i'm up at 4 a.m in los angeles and 6 a.m in st louis
2: okay yeah that was another question with travel do you have any hacks for that like melatonin would you consider using melatonin if you're going to london tomorrow no no i'm going to london
0: in about about three weeks uh, uh to speak at the health optimization summit and i will use an app called uh time shifter which is created by one of our nasa astronauts and i'll tell it how many days ahead of time i want to start shifting, and how many days after I get there I want to use for shifting. And it will have me adjust my sleep phases, my caffeine, my light exposure. If I want to use melatonin, it'll add that in for me as well and have me sort of push the circadian cues up and down faster. We can brute force it, we can just naturally adjust about one time zone per day. Um, I go back and forth a lot, I have a, have a, um, a QEG office in southern Sweden, which is nine hours ahead of us in Los Angeles, and I go out there about twice a year before I started bringing all my tricks on board, it would take me about three days to adjust once I got there, about six days to adjust when I got back. Um, and now using time shifter and some very careful use of you know, sleep hacks, I can usually adjust uh, in about a day and a half when I get there and about three days when I get back.
2: Okay, like, so you can, can cut it in half.
0: Just about, yeah. And some of that was me learning how to keep my sleep cycle consistent no matter where I was in the world. I do flip my sleep cycle when I go to Europe. I, I, I do adjust my, my, my time zone. I don't adjust it when I go to the central time zone or East Coast because I, I travel so much I travel every month, you know, at least once. So I, I don't adjust for a couple hours. You know, I just adjust my Google calendar so I can tell what time of day it is where I am. That's it, <laughs> you know.
2: And so then are you using, if you do go to the other side of the world, if you are going to Europe, then will you use 300 micrograms of melatonin?
0: You'll just- I won't. I don't find melatonin does very much for me. I don't, I don't think it's the strongest. But I'll be very cautious about having sunglasses to hand when I want to cu- cut on light and um, when I sleep and when I wake. Like, activity is the big one there for me. Uh, and I, I also drink a lot of caffeine, so I have to remember not to like, just reach for the next cup of coffee if it's the wrong time of day, like that, that will throw me off. Um, um, I drink a lot of caffeine. I'm also fairly sensitive to caffeine. So I know if I like land in London or, you know, Denmark or something and it's 4 PM there and I have a cup of coffee, which I want, it's going to push my circadian rhythm back by a day. So I have to be careful with some of those cues, but for me, caffeine activity and when I sleep, um, uh, are the big ones.
2: And is caffeine, do you see that being a major player in your office? Um, are you telling people to cut back on caffeine? Are you strategizing? No, you're shaking your head.
0: More. Yeah, people can, yeah, I tell them to use more caffeine sometimes. Um, uh, coffee is good for you, basically. If you aren't putting sugar and crap in your coffee, it's good for you. You know, Westerners get more antioxidants from caffeine, from, from coffee rather, than I think from all other dietary sources combined. So. Caffeine, uh, or coffee specifically, is really, really good for you. You know, two to four cups a day cuts your your lifelong risk of things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cancer, and diabetes down in a measurable way, dramatically. And the study out a couple months ago showing the upper limits of caffeine across large populations of heavy caffeine drinkers, like in Finland. The upper limits before health risks started to accrue for caffeine, I think, were 26 cups a day.
2: What if it gives you anxiety?
0: Well, then you're, you're having other issues, gut issues or cardiac issues, yeah. But for many people, if you're getting anxiety from caffeine, I would wonder if it's just the caffeine. Um. I or if would you actually, just
2: really have anxiety.
0: Or you have some anxiety, it's just cranking and you should
2: it up. Do mm-hmm. some neurofeedback and deal with that. Or,
0: exactly. <laughs> or you want to add some L-theanine capsules to your cup of coffee or just swallow it and then you get Plus, those
2: So then what about having green tea tea or yerba mate where there is that naturally occurring balance Great. of
0: caffeine That's and it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> I think coffee's better for you than tea. So I'd rather you have lots of coffee than lots of tea, because I think the antioxidants and the roasted beans are much healthier than what you get in tea.
2: And then um, what about adding fat to that? Does that increase? Or do- I
0: think that's nonsense. Oh. I think fat's fine for you. you know. But I think that, A, you should be fasting in the morning, not having fat. It's bad for you to have calories all day long every day. You need to fast. You need to have moments of not eating. Hours but didn't you say eating. that you
2: want to do that later in the evening, right, and that people should be having breakfast?
0: No. They should skip breakfast. You should be fasting in the morning as well.
2: So when do you, when, when is the ideal time to eat? Cause I'm sorry. I thought it depends, I was thinking depends that on how fast.
0: you're doing it. Depends on how you're doing it. If you're intermittent fasting and you're a man, you probably want to do like a good eight hour window, woman, 10 hour window, roughly and work backwards. So if you're going to bed at like, you know, let's say 10 PM, you want to have a three hour fasting window. So you finish eating at 7 PM. And you start eating at 11 AM? If you're a guy or I can't do math, uh, 9 AM. If you're a woman, um, that's not a big. That's not a hard window. Nine a.m. to seven p.m.
2: No, not at all. Okay, but then you're waking up at four or five a.m. Exactly. Waking fear. up,
0: working out, having some time to hydrate and rest, kicking all your insulin. You know, ride that ghrelin, and then eat only after a few hours have gone by.
2: And are you having coffee in that window before, yes. like when you're still fasting? You yeah, because
0: black coffee. coffee is no calories, really. Okay. Yeah,
2: but if you're going to have yeah. some. Yeah, sort water,
0: of- black coffee, tea.
2: Okay. If you're putting fat in your coffee, then you want to do that starting at 9 or 10 a.m. Right. or 11. No,
0: Exactly. No calories before your fasting window. None at all. So basically it's a time-restricted feeding, but you, but you, know, anything that doesn't cause an insulin spike, 30 calories roughly causes an insulin spike or can, or causes digestion to kick in. Usually 20, carbs, 20 grams of carbs is insulin, but 30, 30 kilocalories will cause digestion often. So coffee doesn't have any calories really, black coffee.
2: Okay. Are there any exciting uh, technologies for sleep optimization that you're interested in?
0: Just this sort of proliferation of sleep hackers we're getting access to. I think that there's a lot on the horizon. I think I'm very excited about what the Whoop and the Aura are doing. There's another company up here in uh, Santa Barbara, uh, the Biostraps, interesting technology as well. And my guess is that over the next year or two, we'll be having more and more access to self, you know, quantified self-tech to understand more and more about what's happening um, uh, for ourselves. So.
2: And what about sleep studies? What is your feeling about an inpatient, like overnight sleep study in a hospital versus the at-home ones? How relevant do you think those are? It's,
0: it's expensive pretty- a little bit, and you might not sleep your natural amount. So um, what you'll have to do, I mean, it depends on why. If, if, you, uh, um, if you think you have apnea, go get a sleep study. But if you just are wondering about your sleep quality, buy a cheap sleep tracker, and it's a lifestyle thing. It's it's kind of like, you know, these things aren't perfectly accurate, but they're accurate the way a body fat scale would be. If you step on a body fat scale today, and it says 20%, and tomorrow it says 18%, you probably had about a 2% drop. It wasn't actually accurate numbers either way, but it's roughly a change. So I would look at the sleep trackers and go, oh, cool, hour and a half of deep sleep, and then you have like three glasses of wine tonight, and tomorrow you're like, ooh, an hour of deep sleep. Ooh, okay. And you learn from it. I don't care what the quality of the data is so much these days. But what I don't want, I mean, I have a couple clients done this, and I have to kind of read them the riot act, is I have people that will buy like 17 different devices to track the same thing. And they'll track all the different data streams of all the devices. And, and I'm like, how's your sleep? I don't know. What do you mean? You're tracking it, right? Yeah. Well, how's your sleep? Well, on which device?
2: <laughs> right, yeah. No, I, I've been noticing the same thing, that it doesn't seem like they're overall like super, super accurate, but that yeah. baseline and then the, the measurable difference from night to night based on different variables right. that change is super informative.
0: Right, right. Yeah. I, and, and I think the Whoop and the Aura, which are, tend to converge pretty well, seem to, uh, seem to have some good uh, validity. My guess is all the devices are getting better and better these yeah. days and over the next of years
2: as we get more data. So I know you are a busy man and you have to go. I have one last question for you. If you could get any study done on sleep with an unlimited budget, what would it be? What do you think we're missing in the research?
0: Mm. Um, I think we need a good sense of what day-to-day things are affecting sleep. Like I want, people to carry around uh, day trackers and look at their carbohydrate consumption, their exercise, their stress, their screens, their alcohol, and correlate that kind of stuff with sleep. Unlimited money, I would give everyone a really high-end quantified self-device that would tie into their sleep trackers. and Then track lifestyle factors that we know affect sleep. If you're fasting, what you're eating, when you're exercising, and look at how those, those, because we know these are the big zeitgevers. We just don't necessarily know how they combine or, you know, who's sensitive to which ones. So that can be teased apart a lot further, I think.
2: What fun. Well, we will look forward to that happening someday. So we all know how to get the best sleep. That's right. Andrew, thank you so much for your time and for all sharing all of your expertise and wisdom today. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: My pleasure. Thanks
1: for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Andrew Hill. If you didn't know already, one of the other things we do in the collective is create supplements for better cognition, better aging, and more energy. If you're looking for any or all of that, go to neurohacker.com to learn more. And as our gift to you, we're offering an additional 15% off your first order using the code podcast69. If you have questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com podcast and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. Make sure to go leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you next time.